I had one brother tell me between services today that John 14, he felt was the most comforting chapter in the Bible to him. We'll get there soon, the Lord willing. Let's see if we can make some progress in John chapter 8 today. I begin reading at verse 30. As he spake these words, the content of this morning's sermon, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. Amen and amen. Let's look at these verses. John 8, verse 30 to verse 37. As he spake these words as the content of verses 21 through 29, it says many believed on him. I pointed out last Lord's Day, and I don't need to repeat myself, that we make it, I don't need to repeat myself in depth or detail. I have to repeat myself enough to remind you of what I said last Lord's Day. An interpretive choice has to be made is these many that believed on him, this plural group of people, the same group of people that are referenced by the plural answer in verse 33, they answered him. And Jesus in verse 34, Jesus answered them. Is this the same group of people that believed on him? And we agree that it is by just tracing these pronouns. And because the Lord has been kind to us to show us that this same thing had happened in other places. We had seen it in John 2, the last three verses, and we looked at them last Sunday. I'm not turning you to them again, though they're so close by. Those last three verses of John 2 were that many believed on him because of his miracles, and Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in man and did not need that any should testify of what was in man. In John 6, we had a whole crowd that diligently sought him across the Galilean Sea and wanted to make him king and followed him and sought him and told him that they, they greatly regretted that he had got away from them during the night by walking on the Sea of Galilee. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ exposed them as being false believers that the more doctrine he taught, the fewer there were until they all left him. We've already seen that in the Gospel of John. And we're going to see it right here. Because there's no reason for us to jump to a different category of persons that are in the audience for verse 33 and verse 34. They answered him. Who is the they? That's a plural pronoun, and it refers back to the many that believed on him, to whom Jesus addressed himself in verse 31. And I said enough last Lord's Day. Verses 31 and 32 indicate that these people had some problems and that he was telling them to get to the next level or to really become a disciple, to truly be a genuine disciple of mine, you need to do a whole lot more than just assent to the fact that I may be the Messiah. 
There needs to be obedience. And that's continuing in my word. You've got to get into my word. Then you've got to continue in my word. Then you're a disciple indeed. And you'll know the truth if you do that. You won't know the truth unless you get into my word and continue in it. And that's when I brought up John 7, 17, which is a fantastic verse. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether I speak of myself or whether I speak of God. And that's in John 7, 17. So here we are. We've looked at these verses before. Verse 30, we believe that these are men just giving some mental assent to the fact that this is a prophet. It just says many believed on him. He was a prophet. He was a good man. He was the Messiah. He was Christ. There's, no, there's nothing here about repentance. There's nothing here about falling on their faces and, and saying, men and brethren, or Lord Jesus Christ, what shall we do? Or Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? You know, like the men of, on the day of Pentecost, or like Saul of Tarsus said, or like Peter on his ship, when Jesus had him cast his nets on the other side, and they drew in a great draft of fish that began to sink both ships, and Peter said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. There's no confession like that here. It's just that many believed on him. If we were to go down the streets of Greenville today, or interview people in their parking lots, like Zach used to do after church, and ask them if they believed on Jesus, what would they say? If we went to a Catholic church, do they believe on Jesus? If we went to a Jehovah's Witness, Kingdom Hall, do they believe on Jesus? Yes, they believe on Jesus, but it doesn't prove anything. Everyone believes on Jesus in Greenville, South Carolina. And that's just a generalization, but everybody believes on Jesus. That's not enough. And so the words of our Lord, following up immediately, if ye continue in my word, my word... My doctrine, my teaching, I have many things to say and judge of you. If you continue in that, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth. You don't know it yet. And the truth shall set you free. You're not free yet. They answered him and said, we are free. We've never been in bondage to any man. This is an interpretive choice that we make connecting 30 to 33 and 34. It doesn't alter 33 and 34 and following because it is obvious that the group in 33, Jesus is going to expose them as children of the devil. If you just follow down through the reading like you were supposed to do last evening all the way to verse 47. So there's the situation. We went over these verses last Lord's Day and right now we want to come to verse 33 and think briefly about that particular statement. There is so much that could be said. I could preach... This sermon, both sermons next Sunday on verses 30, 31, and 32. I said enough, and we're going to get the rest out of the verses we have for today. And that is mental assent that Jesus is Christ, or yes, I believe on Jesus, is not good enough. It needs to be a life-changing faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God... For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It is so much more than mental assent. And yes, I'm tying my introduction and my connection, my transitional verses about Enoch from this morning to this sermon right now because it's not just mental assent. 
It has to be a changed life and loving Christ and embracing Him and wanting to live for Him and diligently seeking Him. Not just, yeah, that sounds pretty good. He may be the Christ. I think He's the Christ. I think He's a prophet. I think He's a good man. I don't think He's a good man. I think He's deceiving the people. These are all statements from the Gospel of John. So we come to John 8, 33. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? The Jews trusted in their genealogy from Abraham more than anything else. Jesus had to deal with it over and over. John the Baptist had to deal with it. The Apostle Paul had to deal with it. When you open the Gospel of the New Testament of Matthew and come to Matthew chapter 3, there's John the Baptist and some Pharisees come out to his baptism. Don't say within yourself that you're the sons of Abraham. That's not going to cut anything here. Bring forth some repentance and some fruits meet for repentance. Show me something. John the Baptist had to deal with it. Jesus had to deal with it. And the Apostle Paul, and we describe them when Paul's dealing with them as Jewish legalists. Because they were Jews that believed you had to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved, and they wanted that preached to the Gentiles as well. That's why there was the council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, because of these Jewish legalists. And here we go with one of their statements. We be Abraham's seed. Now they knew that Rome was marching their streets, and they were in subjection to Rome, and they were paying tribute to Rome. They knew that Nebuchadnezzar had taken them captive. They knew that they had been slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh. We want to give them a little bit of intelligence, though we do enjoy laughing about them making this statement while there are iron boots on their sidewalks. Yet, they were looking at it, most likely, as the fact that there was a covenant made with Abraham. That that covenant with Abraham would be to him and his seed for a particular piece of land and great blessings among the Gentile nations, and the ability to defeat all their enemies. Those are promises made to Abraham. You get all this land, it is your seed that I'm going to give it to forever, and I will defend you from all your enemies, and through you, the whole earth is going to be blessed, meaning that the Jews would be greater than the Gentiles. All that was said to Abraham. Abraham understood it spiritually and conditionally. There are two reasons we are not dispensationalists when we think about this particular point and why we're not Zionists. The promises made to Abraham were conditional. If you obey, these things will happen. And they were spiritual. The land that I promise you, Abraham, is so much more than this sand at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. It's heaven. And we know that from Hebrews chapter 11, where it tells us that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not content dwelling as nomads down there on that sand of Israel because they looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Yea, they looked for a heavenly country. What is a heavenly country? It's heaven. That's what they were looking for. So we understand it conditionally. While Israel kept the conditions, God gave them the land. David and Solomon extended the borders of Israel until they were at the Euphrates River in Iraq to the Nile River of Egypt from the Jordan River and some property beyond it to the Mediterranean Sea. 
When they disobeyed the conditions, they lost it. Whether it was Shalmaneser or Sennacherib or other Assyrians coming and taking the ten tribes captive, or whether it was Nebuchadnezzar taking the two tribes, they would lose the land. God would give it back to them and restore them. And eventually he took the kingdom away from them altogether and gave it to the Gentiles. But then he had transitioned from the Old Testament kingdom to the New Testament kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is their problem. They had this as a constant problem in their minds that they were Abraham's seed and did not need a Messiah like the Lord Jesus Christ who would die on the cross for their sins. They thought they had a clear path straight into heaven because they were related to the friend of God. And that was not going to do them any more good than it was being a Gentile. And that's why Romans chapter 3, Paul spent so much time and quotes so many times from the book of Psalms and from the book of Isaiah that we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. And that's why we need a Savior. But that's getting off the subject. Let's deal right now with what's happening here. Jesus confronts his audience and those that believed on him to some degree. He confronts them and says, if you'll continue in my word, then you'll truly be my disciples. And then you'll know the truth, and then you'll be made free. They, showing their hearts, we've never been in bondage to any man. What do you mean about being free? They're thinking naturally again. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, Nicodemus, one of the smartest men in Israel, said, do I need to get back inside my mother's womb? John 3, 4. Unbelievable statement. Because he couldn't think spiritually. The woman of Samaria, Jesus said, you should be asking me for water that you'll never thirst again once you drink of it. Oh, give me such water. Then I won't have to come and draw again. I won't have to walk out of town with these five-gallon pails and then walk back in with eight pounds a gallon. I won't have to do any of that. They couldn't think spiritually. And so here, they were taking it as an affront to their relationship with God through Abraham. We've never been in bondage. We have a covenant that God made with Abraham and a covenant that God made with Moses that we have a right to this land and we have a right to annihilate Gentiles. We are not in bondage to them. I know it looks that way, but we're not in bondage to them. Because we have a right to our nation as the friend of God got it started and as Moses perpetuated it with us. So what do you mean we shall be made free? Well, now Jesus tells us and he tells them. But you know how terrible depravity is? You can be told what bondage and servitude and freedom is and you cannot free yourself. God has to free us. And so we have verse 34 and Jesus explains what he meant by verses 30. 1 and 32 about being a disciple indeed and having the truth make them free. 31 and 32 are wonderful. Get in, get in the word of Jesus Christ. What is his doctrine? What does he require of our lives? Continue in it. That makes you a disciple, which is a Christian in the Bible. You'll know the truth, and the truth will deliver you in a practical way from living a life of sin. That's what it's all about here. This is not legal. This is not vital salvation. This is practical salvation of conversion and being a disciple. So Jesus answered them in verse 34, Verily, verily, I say unto you, 
And we know that he is identifying a very important statement that he's about to make by his double verily. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. So he answers the issue, what do you mean we'll be made free? Or if we learn the truth, the truth can set us free. We're Abraham's children. We're not in bondage. We have a right and a covenant promise to this land. What do you mean by freedom? I mean not sinning anymore. I mean whosoever committed sin is the servant of sin. And you can be free from that. Your lives can be changed. If you believe on me, if you get in my word, if you continue in my word, if you learn the truth, the truth can make you free. You can have a changed life, and I'm talking practically. You can have a changed life. But they, they're not going to want a changed life, and that's getting ahead of myself. We want to deal with verse 34 very quickly. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Jesus here explained what he meant by disciples indeed and freedom by truth. Is a single sin sufficient to be the servant of sin? No, not in any meaningful way. Does a single sin condemn us legally to hell? Yes. Does a single sin show that we have a depraved nature? Yes. But is Jesus here dealing with a single sin or is he dealing with being a servant to sin? We choose a servant to sin because that is what conversion saves us from. Conversion does not save us from every sin. The righteous still sin. The righteous still fall. If a man say that he has no sin, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, he's a liar and he doesn't understand the truth. We do sin. And if any man sin, 1 John chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we make an interpretive choice here. This is not a sin, a single sin, just one sin, this is a lifestyle of sinning and where you're under the bondage of it. Does John, this writer, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, ever write anything else like this elsewhere? 1 John chapter 3, which our brother James read to us this morning in the back room before prayer. 1 John 3, verses 6 through 10. If any, uh, let's go and look at it depending on where I start trying to quote that. 1 John 3, here are the verses that you've read before. He that committeth sin is of the devil. Is that one sin or a lifestyle of sin? Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Do you know anyone that's born of God that has not committed sin when it's a single sin or a double sin or ten sins? No, you don't. Everyone that is born of God does commit sin in that sense of the word, one, two, five, ten. But a person that is born of God, truly born of God, does not continue in a lifestyle of sin without grief for it, without confessing it, without turning back, without conviction, is what, how we understand First John chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin in an ongoing lifestyle basis, because he is born of God. We cannot interpret it any other way. Because if we interpret it as to being any sin, one sin, two sins, then we contra or 
or no sin at all, we contradict chapter 1. It's a lifestyle of sin that we understand because we must grant that a child of God can sin. Are you with me? We must grant that a child of God must sin. I don't like to put it in those words, but a child of God will sin. Individually, from time to time, be convicted about it, repent of it, ask God to forgive him, and start over again. Be grieved about it. He may wallow in it for a while. He may be in it for a few months like David was. But when confronted, he gets convicted. He confesses it, and he goes and worships God and starts all over again. We must assume that. And so when we come back to John chapter 8, we find out that this writer, this Bible writer, under the influence of the Spirit, used this very language in 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 through 10, and he's referring to a lifestyle of sin, or sinning without remorse, or sinning without guilt, or sinning without conviction, or sinning without, convic- without conversion, sinning without confession. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin, whosoever lives a lifestyle in sin and does not change is the servant of sin. The person that is not one of my disciples, the person that is not in the word of God and continuing in the word of God, like I described in verse 31, then they're a slave to sin. The truth can make you free. Following me can make you free. You can be free from being a a servant to sin. That is what verse 34 is teaching us. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the freedom that I'm talking about is not your freedom of having a covenant for this land. It's not your freedom from Gentiles to be greater than them. It's not freedom from your enemies because God will destroy them. It's freedom from being a slave to sin. It's freedom from being bound up and and, and in bondage to sin. It can't be whosoever committed sin one time is the servant because then we're going to run into deep problems with that. You sin from time to time, and I'm speaking to a a good child of God, and that child of God repents and is considered blameless in the sight of God. When you go to open the Gospel of Luke and you read about Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, they say that they were blameless in all the law. How were they blameless? How how are we going to interpret that? We're going to interpret that they... Whenever they did sin, and it was a rare occasion, they confessed it, repented of it, were cleansed of it, and went on. Just like we're taught in 1 John 1, and 1 John chapter 2, and 1 John chapter 3, those three chapters have to be taken together, and they help us shed light on this passage here. I hope you all are convinced already, but if the truth shall make you free, if the truth shall make you free, then the freedom is the opposite of verse 34. The opposite of verse 34 would be no sin. That is impossible. So what does verse 34 mean? A lifestyle of sin. It must be, just like 1 John chapter 3. Whosoever lives a lifestyle of sin, commits sin in an ongoing, regardless way, is the servant of sin. And that is the freedom I've been talking about. That is what truly happens when you come to me. It says in verse 30 that many of the Jews believed on him. But Jesus took them to another level. 
He said, you've got to get into my word. You've got to continue in my word. Then you'll be truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth shall make you free. It is the process of conversion, of repenting of your sinful lifestyle to turn to Christ. Even after you turn to Christ, there'll be times where we fall into sin. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And if we confess our sins... Now this is John writing to people who have been made free by the truth. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I hope I've said enough. Verse 35. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. Okay, what does this verse mean? And the servant abideth not in the house forever. This is the most difficult verse in this little section of John 8. But context helps us. Look at, look at verse 35. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. I am not going to take the time. You may have read Galatians 4 last night. You may, have, you may be very familiar with the Proverbs of Solomon in which servants are compared to sons. When a son is a little boy, Galatians chapter 4, you can't tell the difference hardly between a son and a servant because the son is under tutors and governors that are controlling his whole life and you can't tell the difference. But then they grow up and, oh, this is the heir. This is the one that takes over the household and orders everyone else around. He's the heir. He's the son. And so there is a difference, but they can't be seen at times. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon said that a servant... And this totally blows away the lies about discrimination for all kinds of reasons that people use. That a servant that will conduct himself with the wisdom of God taught in the book of Proverbs can surpass a son and get part of the inheritance. The Bible teaches that. With, With some of those thoughts in mind, let's continue and think about an example of a servant in the Bible. And her name was Hagar. Hagar was a servant. She was a concubine. She was called a wife in certain respects, but she wasn't a wife like Sarah. She was a concubine wife. She was a wife. There was a wedding. There was a honeymoon. Wherever they went. And they slept together. But what happened? She had a son. Sarah had a son. And the servant's son picked on Sarah's son. Sarah's son was Isaac. Hagar's son was Ishmael. When Ishmael picked on Isaac and mocked him at his weaning party at around five years of age, God confirmed Sarah and her words, throw this bondwoman out. Cast out the bondwoman. Cast out the bondwoman. My son is not going to be heir along with this thing. My son gets it all. Cast this woman out. Get her out of the house. Okay? Can I, can I lead you that far that way? Let's ask some questions. If the previous verse, we got to ask, what is a servant? What servant's under consideration here in verse 35? And the servant abideth not in the house forever. The previous verse tells us what the servant is, a servant of sin. Who is the son? Forget the capital S. 
If you're going to rely on that, you are ignorant of English in the 16th and 17th centuries and of your King James Bible. Or you're going to have the Son of God in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 25 and Nebuchadnezzar seeing the Son of God in the fiery furnace. Don't go there. Forget that capital. That's not how we interpret the Bible. We interpret it by context. Doesn't it bother you in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is a little w? Don't you wish it was a big one? Nope. Because I like that being a little teaser for, for, for people to, to think about, have to think about the context. The Son is explained in the following verse. If the Son therefore shall make you free, then ye shall be free indeed. It's one Son, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. The one that can make a man free if you'll believe on him and become his disciple, according to verses 30, 31, and 32. So when we look at 35, we know that the servant is a servant of sin, a person that has not been converted and is still living a sinful lifestyle, and the son is the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that. If the servant is the servant of sin, and if the son is Jesus, what is the house? Jesus addressed the Jews as Jews right here. So what house did the Jews occupy? Jesus declared that he would abide in that house forever. So what house does he occupy? Therefore, we understand the house to be the kingdom of God and of Christ. The house is the kingdom of God. That's why I had you read Matthew 21 last evening. The servant does not abide in the house. They, oh, they get in for a while. All these Jews were in the house of God. They were in the kingdom of God. They were in the external, visible kingdom of God. But there was a transition taking place where there was an invisible kingdom within the kingdom, and the invisible kingdom were those that were following the Lord Jesus Christ. We're taught that in numerous places. The law and the prophets were until John, since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. But every Jew, when he was born and circumcised and taken to the temple and dedicated, was in the external visible kingdom and house of God. They went to the house of God to worship, the, the use of the word house in a more literal way, where God was worshipped, and they were part of that house that God had given, his kingdom that he had given to the Jews. But they weren't going to stay there forever. Because servants of sin don't get to stay there forever. Those servants that you read about in Matthew 21, when they did not yield the fruits of righteousness, when they did not yield fruits from their kingdom back to the householder, that vineyard was taken away from them and given to a nation that would bring forth fruits. They were cast out. Those servants did not get to keep their place. And it was given to Gentiles. If you read Matthew 21, you know that that passage of Scripture helps us understand this one by being a good cross-reference for it. We understand the house to be the kingdom of God and of Christ, and the servants of sin don't get to stay in it. They lose it. They're thrown out. Were they thrown out? The Apostle Paul uses the last 11 verses of Galatians chapter 4 to take the story of Hagar and Ishmael that I just gave you and apply it to the Jews. What happened to Hagar and Ishmael? They were cast out. What happened to the Jews? They were cast out. In Paul's language, in Galatians 4, in Jesus' language, in Matthew 21, the vineyard was taken away from them. Or, he also said the same place, the kingdom was taken away from them and given to the Gentiles. 
The servant can't stay there forever. You people need to believe on me, get into my word, continue in my word, be my disciples. The truth will, will set you free. Right now you're servants and you are not going to keep this house. The son owns this house. The son inherits this house. This is the son's kingdom and he does not allow servants to sin in his kingdom. Hopefully I've said enough. You'll have an outline with lots of detail to follow this. The Jews were the Old Testament church of God and they first occupied God's kingdom externally and visibly. It was Stephen under inspiration in Acts chapter 7 that called the Old Testament Israel the church. By sinful disposition and actions, they lost the kingdom as you read in Matthew 21 last evening. In Psalm 1 it says, Sinners shall not stand in the congregation of the righteous. In Acts chapter 15, the tabernacle. What is a tabernacle? It's another word for a house. It's a place to dwell. What was that house being filled up with? But with Gentiles. Acts chapter 15, the great council of Jerusalem. The tabernacle of David was re being rebuilt with Gentiles. Therefore, this clause warned the Jews that sin would cost them everything. Jesus has already said, you'll die in your sins. Now he is saying, you're going to lose your house. You're going to be cast out just like Hagar. Oh, they knew Hagar's story very well because the Ishmaelites were their enemies. You're going to be cast out. You're going to lose your place in the house. You will not inherit God's plan for his kingdom people, but the son gets it all. The son abides in his house forever. The son abides in God's kingdom forever, and he's going to throw you out. And Jesus did just that, and God did just that. If you go and read, there's so many places to read. One of the other chapters I recommended to you last night was Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3 and 4. Hebrews 3 are, is the generation under Moses coming out of Egypt that could have had the land of Canaan. But because of sin, they didn't get it. Those servants to sin, if you'll allow me to make that comparison, did not get the land of Canaan. Right. A whole new generation got it. That was Hebrews 3 is dedicated to that. Listen to these words and see if they don't sound like they're from the same author. And hopefully you're convinced that the Bible is written by 40 men through the inspiration of one author. Right. Hebrews 3, 6. But Christ, as a son, over his own house. Do you want that word? Is that what we're dealing with in John 8, over here in verse 35? Are we dealing with the word house? But Christ, as a son, over his own house compared to Moses and his house, whose house are we, Paul's writing Jews, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. We are the house of God and we're part of Christ, the house of God, if we hold fast our convictions about the gospel firm unto the end. If we backslide and go back and join the other Jews, we're going to lose our position in the house of God. And Hebrews 4 takes up and Paul says, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left you of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. God will not allow slaves to sin in his house, in his kingdom. He'll take the kingdom away. How far do we need to apply this? You should understand. If there's a public sinner in this church... We're going to throw them out. We've done it over a hundred times before, and we'll do it again. 
And so you lose your place in the house of God. You lose your place in the kingdom of Christ. John 8, 35. The reason I am telling you about freedom, Jesus speaking to the Jews, the reason I told you about the importance of discipleship, the reason I told you about continuing in my word, the reason I told you about learning the truth and the truth setting you free is because you are the servants of sin. And you will not get the blessings of God upon his people through his kingdom. Others are going to get it. But the son gets it all. Verse 36, if the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. If you'll run to Christ, believe on him, be baptized, get into his doctrine, put into practice his commandments for your life, you have the house. Because we are joint heirs with Christ of God and everything in the universe that he has planned for his people. And that's how you get it from our standpoint. Then, then you're truly Abraham's seed. But we'll, Verse 36, If the Son therefore shall make you free, and the Son can make anyone free that comes to him, and becomes a disciple indeed, and learns the truth, the truth shall set you free. The gospel sets men free. It set, it set Ephesians free. When Paul came and preached in the city of Ephesus, they repented of all their magic junk and brought their magic books and burned them in the street. And the price of the, the value of those books was 50,000 pieces of silver. That wasn't a legal transaction. That wasn't a vital transaction. That was a practical obedience to the gospel. There's a God in heaven and magic is of the devil and has no power anyway. Let me tell you about the sons of one named Sceva. Remember how that happened in that city? The Lord turned that city upside down with the power of Christ against the devil. But you can't be in Jesus Christ's kingdom if you're going to be a servant of sin, meaning living a sinful lifestyle. We're going to get you out practically from our membership sooner or later, and we pray for that. The Lord's going to take you out. The Lord cut Ananias and Sapphira off. The Lord cut many at the church at Corinth off from even being part of the local visible church. And you know the Jews lost the kingdom. The kingdom was given to the Gentiles. The vineyard was taken away from them and given to a nation who would bring forth fruit. And Gentiles have brought forth fruit. When you go to Acts chapter 13, when the actual transition took place, most specifically, Paul is preaching in the city of Antioch of Pisidia. He's given an occasion to preach there, and many Gentiles are converted. And the Jews were stirred up with envy because there's all these Gentiles being converted and they blasphemed. They blasphemed against Jesus Christ, and Paul and, his, and those that were with him shook the dust off their feet and said, we turn to the Gentiles. They will hear and believe. And it says the Gentiles glorified the word of the Lord and rejoiced, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. The, the kingdom, the gospel, the church, spiritual blessings, the invisible kingdom of Jesus Christ was taken away and given over here to the Gentiles, right there in the middle of Acts chapter 13. The Jews were cast out, just like Hagar and Ishmael. Where do I get the liberty to say that? The last 11 verses of Galatians chapter 4, right. where the Apostle Paul took Hagar and Ishmael and compared them to the Jews that now existed in the city of Jerusalem. Yep. They were to be compared to Hagar and her bondson. They were not part of God's kingdom. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. If you'll believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and become his truly indeed 
disciple, the truth will set you free from a lifestyle in sin. Are you a servant of sin? God knows, we know, and you know by your daily choices. What lust or sin do you indulge on a frequent or regular basis against the truth? You're a servant of sin. Listen, brethren. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. What in the world does John keep telling us over and over and over again about false believers unless false belief is a common problem? His purpose that I started out with this morning, many things Jesus did in the presence of his disciples that were not written down, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that belief, by the time you get to chapter 20, you know what it is. It is serious discipleship. Many are called by the gospel. Many get into churches and say, I believe. Many get baptized, but not all are chosen. Many are called, few are chosen. So I ask you, what lust or sin do you indulge on a frequent or regular basis against truth? Is it disrespect of your husband? Eating too much? Dishonoring parents? Fantasizing about another woman? Neglecting prayer? Anger or bitterness at others for personal offenses? Lack of joy in your life? Being overwhelmed by your easy life? Saying things that hurt others? Slothful in working? Foolish in spending? Disrespect of civil rulers? Neglect of hospitality? What is it? What hasn't Jesus Christ broken you free from? He can break you free of anything. Just humble yourself and fall before him. He'll give you the strength to defeat any sinful enemy. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's what the Bible says. That's what I'm teaching. That's what Jesus taught. And that's what real belief is. And I would, I would be disserving you if we didn't preach the whole truth of this passage right here. Jesus goes on to say, knowing what, they're, knowing what they said in verse 33 and knowing their thought processes, I know that you're Abraham's seed. You don't have to tell me that. They said that in verse 33. We be Abraham's seed. I know you're Abraham's seed biologically and physically. But ye seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. They were not really converted. You look at me, you see my miracles, you hear some of the things I say about you're going to die in your sins, that when I've been lifted up and the Father is speaking through me and the Father has sent me on a divine mission, you hear those things, you give mental assent that I may be the Messiah, I may be the Christ, I may be a prophet, I may be a good man. That's not nearly enough. You need to continue in my word, become a disciple indeed, and the truth shall set you free, and the freedom is freedom from a lifestyle of sin. You need to be converted and become a new creature practically 
to follow me. I don't care if you're Abraham's seed. I already know that about you, but you're in bondage to sin. And if you don't get things changed, you're going to die in your sins. That is John chapter 8, 21 through 37. What sin has you changed to it? What do you need to change in your life that is not changed? There is strength in Christ and real disciples just go do it. Now, that's a different ending from the first service. Do they fit? It's your choice. Be a Jew and be ground to powder by the Roman armies at the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ and then be cast into the lake of fire or be an Enoch. Be an Enoch. And always do those things that please God and have him want to embrace you and have a personal relationship of fellowship with you, whether he takes us or not to heaven like Enoch, and I don't think that's going to happen, but if he were to come to us and dwell within us like John 14 describes, it's good enough. Amen. It's good enough. There's the choice we have. And that's why we get together. That's why we open the word of God. That's why we're stuttering, studying John. We have a choice. If you play with sin, you're the servant of sin. If it doesn't convict you and bother you, you shouldn't be in this church. There's lots of churches that don't care if you live in sin. They'll never bring it up. They don't care. But in here, we want everyone to hate sin. And we want everyone to hate the sins that they have, the sins that they're vulnerable to, the sins where you are weakest. Hate them. Don't be thinking about anyone else. That's, that's back to Wednesday night. We've got to rule our thoughts. Let's rule our thoughts and not think about the moat in someone else's eye or life. Let's think about the beam, the telephone pole, the fence post in our own eye and get rid of it. Right. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free. Can the Son make you free? Yeah. Absolutely. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free by you becoming a real disciple today, Jesus speaking to them, me speaking to you, ye shall be free indeed. Yeah. Free from sin. The bondage and lifestyle of that dark, negative, depressing, destroying, hopeless way of living. You can be vibrantly alive and walking with God like Enoch was and enjoy the abundant life. It's the choice. They made the wrong one. The Gentiles made a good one. And thank you, Lord.